Hi, English 347, and welcome. Um, I'm trying a new website that allows you to create your own podcasts. I'm having a lot of fun with it. And um, I think what I'm going to do today is um, give you a poetry podcast, a poem podcast, on an Emily Dickinson poem. Try to give you some ideas of what you can do for your presentation. Um, if I had known about this website before the semester had begun, I probably would have used this. Um, and had you do a poem podcast for your uh, presentations. That's a lot of P's alliteration there. Um, but unfortunately, I just learned about it last week. Um, however, I do offer it to you. I'll give you the link. I'll offer it to you as um, a possibility um, for your presentations. I think this would work really well. And I'll show you right now how it will work. Um, I'm going to read a poem, one of the poems for this week. And the poems that I've selected for this week, um, I'm calling this Dickinson's Poetics of uh, Reduction and Difference. I see all of these poems as her sort of poetic manifestos, um, like artist statements on the making of poetry. And um, I always think these are good poems to sort of introduce you to Dickinson, help you int int introduce you to Dickinson, uh, because they sort of tell you how to read her poems, in a way. I give you some clues. Um, the poem I'm going to look at, I Dwell in Possibility, number 466. You can follow along with me. Um, I printed it out online. I printed it, and then I, I made some notes, and I'll take a photo of my notes and show you. Um, they're kind of crazy. My son, 11-year-old son, looked at them and said, Whoa, Mom, mind blown into nothingness. And I was like, that's a, that's a pretty Dickinsonian response. Um, but you'll see my notes are um, pretty dense. And what I want you to do here with this um, presentation, um, oral presentation, which is like basically an oral close reading of the poem, is to wring it dry of meaning. Just squeeze as much meaning as you possibly can out of it. Um, each word each line, each stanza. Um, and I like to go line by line with Dickinson because her poems are so compact, so short. Um, it's harder with, with Whitman um, because he's so vast and sprawling. Um, but with Dickinson, a line by line reading works really well. And I think it would work well in this format, this podcast format. So I'm going to try it out. Um, so first I'm going to read the poem and then I'll get into the analysis. I dwell in possibility. I dwell in possibility, a fairer house than prose, more numerous of windows, superior for doors, of chambers as the cedars, impregnable of eye, and for an everlasting roof, the gambrels of the sky, of visitors the fairest, for occupation this, the spreading wide my narrow hands to gather paradise. Okay, there you go. So there's the poem. And um, I'll just start at the very beginning um, with the, the second word, I dwell. I dwell, to dwell, the verb to dwell. Um, so think about all the possible meanings of the word to dwell. Well, first to dwell means to, to live in, right? Or to inhabit. 
um, you dwell in your dwelling place. You're, I dwell in my home in Frederick, Maryland, in the United States of America. Um, but you can also dwell on something, right? You dwell on a, an issue, a problem, um, an idea, um, to dwell, to, to think about, to mull over, maybe even to obsess over, right? If you dwell on something, you kind of, you're kind of stuck there thinking about it. Um, so possibility, I dwell in possibility. Well, already we know that this is a figurative, we've got a figurative uh, construction going on here, a metaphor. I dwell in possibility. You can't dwell in, you can dwell on possibility, right? Going back to that second meaning of the word dwell. But you can't dwell in something. I dwell in possibility. Possibility, well, what does that word mean? First, well, first thing I, I notice about this word is that it's capitalized, um, as Dickinson often does. Um, capitalize nouns and important words in, in the poem to give them emphasis. Um, this was sort of an earlier conceit, like a 16th, 17th, 18th century conceit um, that Dickinson has kind of held on to. Um, so possibility here, capitalized, and the word itself. What does possibility mean? Well, I guess here it's it's a an, it's a, it's got a positive connotation, right? It's it's a an optimistic word. Um, possibility is, of course, the opposite of impossibility. Um, but it's also, if you think about maybe the not-so-positive connotations of possible, possibility, um, possibility is also the opposite, or not necessarily the opposite, but it's not certainty, right? Um, possibility leaves some room for ambiguity. Um, doubt, doubt and ambiguity are trademark um, Dickinson. Um, so there are shades of meaning, I think, to that word. It's kind of a loaded word, both optimistic and positive connotations and possibly some potentially negative connotations as well. A fairer house than prose, second line. A fairer house. Okay, fair. What does fair mean? The adjective fair. Um, it means pretty, lovely, attractive. Um, it also means just, right, honest, right? So double meaning there with that, with that word. House, the word house is capitalized again, sort of linking it to the word possibility, right? So house, the house is a house of possibility, a metaphorical or figurative house, right? The, the operating metaphor here is... Um, possibility equals a house, or a house equals possibility. A fairer house than prose. Okay, interesting. So prose, what is the opposite of prose? Poetry, right? So if poetry is the opposite of prose, then poetry here in this, in this analogy is equal to possibility. And if possibility is the house, 
then the house is poetry. Does that make sense? So I dwell in possibility. Possibility here equals house. If we're setting up the analogy, the metaphor, equals house equals poetry, which is the opposite of prose. And fairer, more lovely, more just, more right. More numerous of windows, third line. More numerous of windows. Windows again, capitalized. What do we think of when we think of windows? What do windows do? They let in light, right? And they allow you to see out, others to see in, right? Windows here, often um, Dickinson talks, uh, uses windows in a poem as uh, a metaphor for the eyes or for um, perspective, and particularly um, the, the sense of sight. Um, Dickinson later in her life suffered from an eye condition known as iritis. I think I'm saying that, iritis maybe. Um, and she, iritis, I think, iritis. I'll have to look that up. <laughs> anyway, she, she worried that she was going blind. And at one point um, she saw a doctor and she traveled to see a doctor and she um, was told that she needed to stop reading and writing and to um, not go out into the sunlight um, and to, to avoid sunlight, vo avoid daylight and uh, stop straining her eyes by reading and writing. And that was a, a death sentence for her. So she, she felt it was a death sentence, of course. Um, and uh, so that, that comes up quite a bit in her poetry. You'll see a lot of references to, to the eyes, um, to sight, um, to um, fear of blindness, losing her sight. Um, yeah, so windows here, windows, uh, perception, um, perspective, light. So basically she's saying here, my, my house of poetry, which equals possibility, it's more beautiful than prose. It has more windows a lot more windows, and it's superior for doors. Its doors are better, right? It's got better doors. Well, let's think about the word doors. Here, doors is um, also capitalized. And I should point out too, it's a slant rhyme with prose. I dwell in possibility, a fairer house than prose, more numerous of windows, superior for doors, prose, doors. Um, that would be a, a Dickinsonian slant rhyme. She does that a lot. Um, doors. So when we think about doors, what do we think about? Um, what, what do doors allow you to do? Or what, why do we have doors in a house? To get in and out, right? Entrances and exits. Um, so um, liminality, right? A door for um, Dickinson also represents privacy. Um, there's a famous story of her um, 
uh, having her 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 uh, little niece over uh, to her room one one day. She hardly ever let visitors into her room. If she met visitors, she went down. But apparently, one day she had Maddie, um, Madeline, her uh, little niece, over, and she uh, they were in the bedroom, and or they entered the bedroom, and Dickinson closed the door behind her and pretended to lock the door. Um, there was no key, but she pretended to turn a key in a lock, and she turned to the, her niece and said, "Maddie, here's freedom." So imagine that for Dickinson, a closed door, a closed, a room with a closed door equals freedom. Okay, so let's move on to um, the second stanza. Of chambers as the cedars. Chambers. Um, what are chambers? In, in, the, in, the ter in terms of this metaphor, um, this uh, Poetry as, as architecture, right? A house. It's architectural metaphor. Chambers are rooms, right? Specifically bedrooms. Of chambers as the cedars. As, so here a simile. Um, chambers, rooms like cedars. What are, what, are, what are cedars? Cedars are a type of tree. Um, where do we see cedars in Western culture? Um, we see them in the Bible. They come up in the Old Testament. Um, specifically, uh, the wood used to build the house of the Lord in Samuel 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 2. Um, also, the cedars of Lebanon are, are famous and mentioned also in the Bible. Um, so there's a biblical uh, element or perhaps allusion uh, with the cedars. There's something biblical about these of these rooms. The cedars are also very tall trees. Um, so these rooms are tall as cedars, high as cedars. The next word, impregnable. Impregnable. What does impregnable mean? Um, first, I, I forgot to tell you something. Um, there's a website. I think I mentioned this in one of my earlier audio clips. There's a website called the Emily Dickinson Lexicon which is um, basically an Emily Dickinson dictionary, a dictionary specific to Emily Dickinson's poems. And you can type in any word, you can search for any word used in any of her poems, and it'll give you some definitions. So, for example, if I type in impregnable, which maybe you're not entirely familiar with that word, um, and then I click on it, it'll give me some um, some definitions. Impenetrable is one definition. Imperceptible, you can't see it. Invisible, hidden, not seeable, not revealed. Um, it can also mean puzzling or unclear, in, incomprehensible, inscrutable. Um, unassailable is another de definition. Inviolable, um, sacrosanct. Right, so it means sacrosanct means um, you can't you can't touch it. It's holy, invincible, incorruptible, everlasting. Um, so lots of definitions here that fit in the context of this poem. Impregnable of eye. So um, you can't see in. 
It's kind of, uh, it's, it seems like an oxymoron, though. If there are lots of windows, wouldn't you be able to see in? And she says, no, because they're so high um, that you can't, you can't see them. They're imperceptible. You can't, um, you can't detect them. Imperce impregnable of eye. Eye, again, goes back to the windows, um, this idea of sight and Dickinson's uh, own personal obsession over, over her sight, the health of her sight. So perhaps it's a pun. Could it be a pun? The eye, the eye, the organ is also a stand-in for the speaker. Could it be a synecdoche, perhaps? Synecdoche is one figure of speech um, that uh, Dickinson uses a lot in her work. It's where a part stands for a whole. And she often uses synecdoche in terms of body parts. So like a body part standing in for the whole person. Um, it's possible. I think it's a possibility here. And for an everlasting roof. And for an everlasting roof. Uh, the gambrels of the sky. And for an everlasting. Everlasting, what do we think of when we think of the word everlasting? Um, heaven, right? Um, eternity. Forever. Uh, forever is composed of nows. Is a wonderful um, Emily Dickinson poem, first line of an Emily Dickinson poem, forever is composed of nows. Um, but everlasting here, an everlasting roof. Again, roof is uh, capitalized. An everlasting roof goes back to all of our parts of the house, right? The windows, the doors, the chambers, um, the roof. Um, here, the everlasting roof is like the firmament, the heavens, the firmament. The gambrels of the sky. Gambrels are like architectural beams um, that support the, the roof. So um, the everlasting roof, the gambrels of the sky, this image of um, the house as uh, the, 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 with the, the roof as the heavens or the heavens is the roof, right? The heavens are the roof. The gambrels of the sky. It goes back also to the idea of the chambers as the cedars. The, um, the rooms in this house are so high, they're up in the trees with the cedars, as high as the cedars. Of visitors the fairest, so I'm on the um, fourth, uh, third stanza, sorry. Only three stanzas in this poem. The final stanza. Of visitors the fairest. Of visitors. Okay, who's coming to this house? Who's, who's visiting this house? The fairest ones. Ah, there's that word fair again. Right? It was back, it was in the, the third line of the first stanza. A fairer house. So this fair house of poetry, um, only the, the fairest visitors can visit, right? Only the most beautiful, the most just can visit this house of poetry. Of visitors the fairest. Now, no doubt here, I feel like this, this final stanza is, um, Dickinson is kind of um, commenting on 
the social life of Amherst and um, specifically the social life of her her sister-in-law, Susan Dickinson, who many believe was also her lover, um, that they were romantically involved. Um, and Susan Dickinson was a, a, a incredibly cultured woman, um, intelligent woman, and very socially active um, in the town of Amherst. And she held these uh, salons, these literary salons, um, that were well known um, throughout the region. Um, parties. Um, she was quite the socialite. Um, so no doubt, Dickinson is sort of commenting on on that that lifestyle um, that was lived right next door um, while she was um, writing away, writing furiously away in her bedroom. A visitor's the fairest for occupation. This. So the word occupation, occupation, what does it mean? The if you say, what is your, if I ask, what is your occupation? Work, right? For work, what, what do you do for work? Um, what about another word for, or another uh, meaning of occupation? If you go back to the idea of dwell, to live in, um, to occupy, right? Um, to occupy something. But here in this context, occupation has more of a sort of political um, connotation to it for occupation this. I don't know if she was using it, um, if she was thinking of that political connotation for the word occupation. But it does go back to the idea of dwell and dwelling in possibility. She's occupying this dwelling place, this house of poetry. For occupation, this, this, what? The poem, right? She's actually talking about the poem as she's writing it. It's kind of a meta moment. Um, we call this Ars Poetica. The whole poem we would call an Ars Poetica. Ars is Latin for art. Poetica poetry. So a poem about the art of poetry. She's actually talking about the making of the poem, the poem as she's writing it and sort of gesturing to it, right? When she says this, can you imagine her sort of pointing to the poem that she's writing on the envelope or scrap of paper or whatever she's writing on? For occupation, this, this poem. The spreading wide my narrow hands to gather paradise. The spreading wide my narrow hands. My narrow hands. The spreading wide my narrow hands. Narrow. What does narrow here mean? Well, it can mean small. It can mean thin, right? Um, it could be, if you're, if you're narrow-minded, you're prejudiced or sort of limited in your thinking. Narrow could be limited. The spreading wide my narrow hands. Can you see her doing it with her little hands? Can you see her spreading her hands out to gather paradise? What is paradise? Well, of course, paradise going back to the everlasting roof, the gambrels of the sky, the heavens, 
the eternity, right? But let's look at it in terms of the rhyme scheme and what she's doing, how she's linking words and ideas through the rhyme scheme. A visitor's the fairest for occupation this. The spreading wide my narrow hands to gather paradise. Well, we see up uh, throughout the poem that she's she's rhyming the second and fourth lines of every stanza, right? So prose and doors is a slant rhyme. Then you've got eye and sky in the second stanza. And then you've got this and paradise in the third and final stanza. So if this is the poem, the word this refers to the poem itself, and she's linking this poem then through the rhyme scheme to paradise, right? The poem is paradise. The spreading wide my narrow hands. I imagine her actually sort of fanning out, you know, spreading out her fans or her hands, fanning her hands um, across her desk or across the floor or across her bed or wherever she's spread out her poems. And she's spreading her hands as she's sort of spread her poems out wherever they are in her bedroom um, to gather paradise. And she's gathering them all up in her hands. Those poems for her were paradise, like the writing of poetry is paradise. The locking of a door, right, um, for her is, is paradise. So um, let's, let's see, I have a lot of notes here on this uh, poem, and I don't know if I've gotten to all of them. Um, let me see, I, I thought I had some good ideas here. Um, we've got a number of words that suggest, um, um, that have a, a religious or biblical, right, connotation. Um, the cedars starting there, um, the everlasting roof, um, the spreading wide my narrow hands together, paradise, paradise, right? Eternity. Um, so the whole thing, it, it almost feels as if this poem is a sort of uh, temple to poetry, right? She's building a temple to poetry. And it's a kind of, it's not a Christian temple or church. It's a kind of pagan church because it's made out of nature, right? Um, nature has, that's another uh, um, motif, I guess, theme throughout this poem, the natural world. Um, the cedars, the gambrels of the sky. I guess that's really all the nature that's in this poem, but there's something about it that has a sort of, for me, it has a kind of pagan feel, as if this poem, the whole poem, were a sort of pagan prayer to poetry, another alliteration. And you can sort of see her again spreading her hands wide, um, you know, how the ancients used to pray with their, with their hands out and their palms up, right, rather than the, the position of uh, supplication, of, of begging, the Christian prayer uh, position with your hands together and your head bent. 
um, I see her lifting her hands up and sort of, I mean, this is a, a hymn to, to the poem, right? To the poem itself, to the act of writing poetry. So I, I say, I write on my, in my notes, she's minister of her own pagan church of poetry. Um, in that sense, it, this poem reminds me a lot of Some Keep the Sabbath Going to Church. Um, similar themes um, in terms of finding ecstasy, finding God, finding paradise uh, within yourself or within nature. So I think that's all I have to say. I hope that was helpful in um, giving you some idea of how to go about this presentation. Um, my presentation looks like it's going to be just under half an hour. Um, I'd like for you to talk at least, you know, 20 minutes or so. Um, that sounds good to me. And um, if you have any questions, absolutely let me know. And um, again, hope this was helpful. Take care. I'll talk to you soon. Hi again, English 347. Um, of course, I forgot one of the important aspects of your poem presentation, which is the presentation of the criticism. I would like for you to do a little research. Um, unlike a traditional close reading of a poem where you're not supposed to do research, um, you shouldn't bring in any outside sources. I do actually want you to bring in some outside sources for this assignment, for the oral presentation. Um, and I'm going to show you an example. I'm going to give you an example. I will um, read the criticism for you, and I'll also include a link so you can read it on your own. Um, and you'll find, I've given you some websites in the assignment document, I've in the guidelines, I've given you some um, websites where you can look up criticism. Um, all of the poems that I've selected for the presentations, and that's why I selected them, I know that there is criticism, online criticism, readily available. Um, the cri critic that I am going to be reading from here is Suzanne, Suzanne Juhas. Um, and this is from her book, The Undiscovered Continent, Emily Dickinson and the Space of the Mind, published in 1983. Um, okay, so this is on I Dwell in Possibility. This is the paragraph that I wanted to read to you and talk about for just a minute. This house is possibility, the imagination. Dwelling there, the lady of the manor makes not cakes, but poetry. Possibility becomes associated with poetry in stanza one, when it is contrasted with its opposite, not impossibility, but prose. Thus, the occupation of she who lives in the mind, the spreading wide her narrow hands to gather paradise, may be interpreted as the creation of poetry. Paradise is the farthest space conceivable, and the mind can expand to include it. When this happens, because of the power of the imagination, the housewife can be a poet. So here, um, Juhas is taking kind of a feminist reading, I, I guess you would say, of the poem. Um, obviously, she's calling it an Ars Poetica, right? And that she says, um, 
she says the lady of the manor makes not cakes but poetry possibility becomes associated with poetry in stanza one um so all of this the spreading wide her narrow hands to gather paradise may be interpreted as the creation of poetry so as i said in my um podcast um this poem is an ars poetica um but here as I say, I, I think I was looking at it more from a kind of um, uh, religious perspective, um, the idea of building this temple, um, this pagan temple to poetry. Yuhas um, sees the poem uh, from a more feminist perspective, um, where um, the lady of the manor, as she calls her, the speaker of the poem, um, is... Uh, building a whole new paradigm um, for the housewife. Um, the housewife, as she says, is making not cakes, but poetry. And she's entertaining. And um, I, I kind of like this, this reading of this idea of the visitors of the poem. Um, if you read the poem as the lady of the manor, um, entertaining visitors in this house of poetry, the visitors she's entertaining are the muses. Um, her inspiration for the, her poems. Um, the fairest visitors, I like the idea of the visitors being the muses. Um, and as I mentioned too, she's um, this idea of visiting and keep, keeping house and entertaining visitors um, is, was very much a part of her um, life, her social circle although she didn't participate in any, in any of them. She didn't really go to any of Susan's parties or literary salons, um, even though she lived right next door. Um, she avoided them. Um, so yeah, I like this. I like this reading. I like this idea of um, the poet living in her own mind, dwelling in her own mind. This this um, house is the house of imagination, and it, 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 it exists entirely within the poet's mind. And the poet is, has transformed her house, um, and she's transformed herself from housewife to poet. So there you go. That's one reading, a uh, critical reading of the poem. And you're welcome to, um, to use more if you find others that um, support your ideas or um, sort of extend some of your ideas about the poem, um, you're welcome to use as many as you like. Um, I just require that you do research at least one critical interpretation. So hopefully, hopefully that helps. Thanks.